The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I want to uh, move right into this next uh, major section on the development of New Testament textual criticism. Um, What I want to do here is to summarize the history of this particular discipline, but uh, not to try to be uh, exhaustive because Metzger gives you a fairly detailed account of uh, what has been going on in the past four or five centuries. Uh, Instead, what I want to do is to focus on a few uh, especially uh, significant stages in that development that I think uh, can be really helpful in understanding the character of the discipline and uh, the, the state of that discipline today as well. <clears throat> Just a few pre- uh, preliminary comments about uh, what went on in the field prior to the Renaissance. Uh, this little heading in the uh, syllabus in the uh, lecture outline, From Antiquity to Erasmus, it is simply to remind you of the fact that in one sense you could argue that textual criticism as such begins way back in classical Greece, uh, developing in a very significant way in in, uh, the Hellenistic period, particularly in the city of Alexandria. You may recall that uh, Alexandria, the second largest city in the the Mediterranean world, um, boasted the largest library in the world And so the city became a center for scholarship, and particularly with regard to the transmission of the Homeric writings. There was a great deal of work uh, developed trying to figure out what to do with variations among the manuscripts and so on. Little systems of signs were developed to, uh, to indicate difference among them, that kind of thing. But then, of course, uh, this whole field, in a sense, passes on to uh, the Christians of the Middle Ages, although you can't say that that great strides uh, were made uh, during during the Middle Ages, but don't think either that, you know, we have this conception of the Dark Ages, and uh, I don't know whether we think of of people at that time just, you know, being dummies uh, who didn't know what was going on, uh, it's not quite that bad, and um, the, there was a lot of significant work uh, being done during the period of in a variety of fields, especially in the high Middle Ages. But the truth is that uh, the, the truly significant watershed, if you will, uh, took place only with the Renaissance. <clears throat> and it's interesting how these things happened. Uh, one of the... Uh, uh, details that was particularly prominent 
had to do with some of the debates about the power of the church. And that was connected in the discussion at that time with a document called the Donation of Constantine. Constantine, the emperor, supposedly had uh, given a lot of authority to the church. And um, this document was challenged with regard to its authenticity. And uh, in fact, it was a spurious text, and there were a number of others. And that kind of, um, if you will, raising of people's sensitivity with regard to the transmission of texts and, and whether something is authentic or not, uh, really gave a lot of uh, motivation for systematic study of uh, literature, ancient literature, from, from this point of view, namely the, the study of the manuscripts and so on. If you focus more directly on biblical criticism as such, <clears throat> biblical textual criticism, uh, that also seems to go back a, a significant, uh, you know, back to, to a, quite an old, uh, an ancient period. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Theodotus in the second century that apparently uh, had interest in that sort of thing. But normally Origen uh, of Alexandria is considered the father of biblical textual criticism, although most of his work was actually focused on the Old Testament, uh, the Greek Old Testament, uh, undoubtedly, he had uh, something to do with the New Testament as well, but, but his work on the, on the Septuagint was so systematic, so thorough, that it provided a, a, a basis for further uh, text-critical work. Jerome, in connection with his work on the Vulgate, uh, was very interested in making sure that his Latin translation was based on, a, on, a, on an authentic text, Greek text, and so he, uh, he developed uh, the field uh, considerably. He was very sensitive to the diversity of uh, scribal errors and so on. Nevertheless, all of these things, whether in the field of classical literature, literature more generally or in the field of the biblical text, uh, all of this, in a sense, could only be preliminary until the invention of the um, uh, printing uh, press only at such a point where you could guarantee that multiple copies would be identical, only at that point could modern textual criticism be developed. You see, prior to the invention of, of printing, I don't care how much work you do on, on the text, the only way that you can put this stuff down in writing is by making another copy. And then somebody's going to copy that and the whole process begins again of people, of copies. You know, I don't care how good they are, they're going to make a number of mistakes. But once you have uh, a machine that produces multiple copies, all of them identical to each other, you, there, there's no... Um, uh, intermediary role here between one copy and another to introduce new mistakes. Now you can have a stable text in a way that you could not before. And uh, all of the work that you do on manuscripts can now be synthesized and, and put together in a, in a more permanent and stable form. Well, this is where Erasmus uh, 
comes into the picture. <coughs> the, uh, the printing uh, press had, of course, been around for a few decades. But um, how about the Greek New Testament? Well, see, it took quite a while for somebody to come up with the idea and the means, the resources, and, and uh, the skills to be able to uh, establish a Greek text of the New Testament that was uh, reliable and for it to be printed. Actually, the earliest people to do this, as you know if you read the Metzger's uh, material, uh, was done by some uh, Spanish scholars uh, who were producing this great polyglot and uh, they had done basically all the work on the New Testament, but uh, it took many more years to get the imprimatum and this and the other. And in the meantime, you had some rather uh, eager beaver publishers who uh, wanted to uh, uh, you know, beat uh, the, the Catholic Spaniards at this. So they got Erasmus to, uh, to try to put something together quickly, and they were really rushing him. And uh, he did the best he could. He tried to find a few manuscripts. Only three or four were available to him. And uh, he rushed this. And um, he did beat the Spaniards. And so in 1515, uh, the first time that the Greek New Testament appears in print, it was uh, full of faults. Undoubtedly, the faultiest text ever edited uh, of the Greek New Testament, <clears throat> but still a, a truly momentous event, uh, particularly significant because of what I think we would view as, as the providential character of what was happening now, uh, coming, coming out as it did um, on the eve of the Reformation and thus making it possible for people to check the original in the midst of all the theological debates that uh, began, uh, you know, particularly in the, in the 1520s and 30s. Please remember that Erasmus himself prized antiquity in the manuscripts. He had available to him only a few quite late manuscripts, but that's not because he thought late manuscripts were good. He just couldn't find any that were earlier. Uh, moreover, there were a few portions of the Greek New Testament <clears throat> that small portions of the Greek New Testament, particularly the end of uh, Revelation and a couple of other passages, where he could not find a complete text so Erasmus was facing a difficult situation now. The publisher is expecting me to give them a Greek text. And I cannot find any Greek manuscript that has the last few verses in Revelation that has this verse here and there. What do you do? Do you know what he did? Yeah, yeah he took the Vulgate in Latin and retroverted back into Greek. And there were a number of passages where he did this. Now, when the uh, Spanish polyglot came out, he now double-checked <laughs> uh, the Greek on uh, these passages. The only problem is that by that time, he had forgotten all the passages where he had done this. And 
even to this date, if you look at the Textus Receptus, which was the um, uh, climactic stage in, in the Rasmus's text, there are still a couple of places where you have a, uh, a something in the text that is not found in any Greek manuscript, but is probably the result of uh, Erasmus's uh, translating back from the Latin uh, to the Greek. <clears throat> As uh, you may know, when Erasmus' text came out, uh, there was a lot of criticism because uh, things were not always the way that they expected them to be. That always happens, you know. Whenever there's a new translation, whenever there's a new this, you get a lot of uh, reaction, and maybe some of that is good because it makes people aware of, of the weaknesses and, and so on. Uh, one of the problems was that... Uh, Erasmus couldn't find in any Greek manuscript uh, those words in 1 John 5, you know, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so being a man of integrity about these things, he didn't include it. Well, that, you know, people were just very, very angry at that, and, and they really were pressuring him, and, and, and he kept resisting, and, and the pressure was so great that uh, he finally said, well, just, just find me a Greek manuscript with it. Now put it in. So sure enough, they found one. Um, but, uh, yeah, <clears throat> probably made to order, yeah. So in the second edition of the Greek New Testament, uh, those words are actually uh, included, yeah. Obviously, that was in the The Vulgate, that's correct. Well, we don't know for sure, but they, uh, obviously the uh, the passage must have, um, um, you know, been introduced somewhere early in the uh, in the transmission of the Latin text, but uh, never made it to any Greek manuscript until the late Middle Ages. Yeah. A version or a Greek manuscript? Yeah, because yeah, because there there are a number of versions that relied on the Vulgate. Now, keep in mind <clears throat> that Erasmus himself was really quite concerned to keep revising his text to make it better. Now, you know, that's a funny way of putting it. How can you make the Bible better? But of course, it's not a matter of making the Bible better. It's a matter of making his work better. He had done the best he could with the available evidence. But uh, the rest of his career, he really devoted quite a bit of time to looking for more manuscripts, to checking his work, make sure that he hadn't made mistakes. He kept revising it until the end. And you would have thought that people would continue that process of revision and careful research and so on. But instead what happened was that there was almost like a halt on textual criticism after Erasmus's work. And his edition began to be treated, as Bentley later would put it, uh, as if an apostle had been the compositor. And uh, what happened is that the Textus Receptus, uh, in fact, you know those very words, uh, Textus Receptus, they come from like a publisher's blurb uh, in one of the uh, editions uh, where the editors, you know, trying to sell the books at Textum 
Um, oh boy, I've forgotten that. I used to memorize the Latin of that textum, something damus uh, ab omnibus receptum, see, received by all. And so it, it was viewed as the standard text. All scholars now recognize that this is the best text available, and it was at that point. But once the, uh, that particular text uh, received that kind of a standing, then uh, there was enormous resistance to any further changes. And uh, as a result, very little work on textual criticism uh, was done in the next century or so, even though there were a number of people who continued to have interest in, in this sort of thing. In any case, um, one of the editions uh, uh, of the Textus Receptus became naturally the, um, the base for almost all the modern, uh, the modern language translations that were produced in the 16th and 17th, 18th centuries, including the King James Version. Now that is the beginning, you see, of modern textual criticism of the New Testament. The next stage, <clears throat> beginning with um, about the middle of the 17th century, is a period of collecting and analyzing variants. Collecting and analyzing variants, that's our next uh, heading here. There were a number of scholars <clears throat> who were quite aware of the fact that if you looked at the available manuscripts, to say nothing of the quotations from the fathers, that uh, you find quite a few variations in the text. And some of these scholars began to just try to collect them, collect as many as possible. Uh, these collections were somewhat haphazard. And uh, not till the end of uh, the 17th century do you have uh, somebody doing really systematic work. and. Uh, talking about John Mill, and you may have uh, read about him, who um, was able to get a, a hold of about a, of about 100 manuscripts and who went through all the significant fathers. And when he was finished with all this systematic work, there were about 30,000 variations. I don't need to tell you that when news of this came out, some uh, Christians were more than a little troubled by it. 30,000 variations in the text of the New Testament. It's supposed to be infallible and so on. And uh, this was also about the time when deism was beginning to take hold. And a number of uh, individuals decided to really have fun with this. One of them was a fellow by the name of Anthony Collins, who wrote a little book challenging the authority of Scripture and in effect mocking uh, the Christian, uh, Christian confidence in the Bible. And uh, this mockery was based on the work of John Mill, who had uh, discovered so many variations. This challenge to the reliability of uh, scripture was taken up by Richard Bentley. And, and he's the fellow that I want to focus on for a few minutes here, Richard Bentley, who was more than qualified 
to deal with this issue because he was himself a classical scholar. He had done extensive text-critical work, particularly in Latin manuscripts, especially uh, a um, playwright named Terence, and he had edited the plays of Terence and, and was you know, generally considered one of the most prominent, uh, if not the most prominent uh, scholar in the field. So he decided to write a response to Anthony Collins, and I have uh, excerpted a good bit of that material in this paper that you're supposed to read, Reform Textual Criticism. And since it is here, I'm not going to take the time to read much of it. I normally do it, but we're a bit behind and all that. Um, his whole thrust, and I, I really encourage you to read this very carefully, it begins on page six, and try to understand the nature of his argument. Uh, his point is that a large number of variants is a blessing instead of a disadvantage because a few number of variants means that you have a few number of manuscripts. And if you have a few number of manuscripts, then there's more suspicion of fraud, of foul play, uh, ignorance, you see, of, of what the situation is. So the more, off, the more copies you have, the better off you are. But every time you add a copy, while it helps you solve some problems, you also increase the number of variations. He says at one point, in, uh, in the profane authors, uh, where one manuscript only had the luck to be preserved, the faults of the scribes are found so numerous and the defects so beyond all redress that notwithstanding the pains of the most learned and acute critics for, whole, for two whole centuries, these books still are and are like to continue a mere heap of errors. On the contrary, where the copies of any author are numerous, even though the various readings always increase in proportion, there the text, by an accurate collation of them made by skillful and judicious hands, is ever the more correct and comes nearer to the true words of the author. Terence is now in one of the best conditions of any of the classic writers. Um, and then he talks about, you know, I'm sure that I have seen at least 20,000 variations in that little author who is not near so big as the New Testament. And I'm morally sure that if half the number of manuscripts were collected for Terence, with that niceness and minuteness which has been used in those for the New Testament, the number of variations would amount to above 50,000. So I'm not afraid by the 30,000 um, and would not lament if, um, if other manuscripts were to arise and many other thousands uh, were to come up. Some of these, uh, with, without question, would render the text more beautiful, just and exact, though of no consequence to the main of religion, nay, perhaps wholly synonymous in the view of common readers and quite insensible, that is, unnoticeable, in any modern version. There's a very, very important point, and I have it in italics there at the top of page eight. What he's saying is, the vast majority of the variations among the manuscripts are so insignificant that not only do they 
have no effect on the teachings of the Bible, but you wouldn't even notice them in a translation. Why? Well, many of them, not only, some, of course, thousands and thousands of them are just spelling errors. Nobody doubts what the words are. Many others have to do with the omission of an article or this uh, particle or something that, again, could not show up in a translation. Or the uh, order of words, that's a very common textual var variation, uh, a change in the order of the words in the sentence that, again, would not affect how you translate. And then um, toward the end, he, he talks about, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you use this argument that Collins is using against the Bible, if you use that against the classical authors, you would give up on despair and say, we cannot read any of the classical authors because they're all totally uh, inauthentic. But of course, that's a silly thing to say. Why? He says, all those passages and all the rest of the remains are sufficiently pure and genuine, he's talking about classical writers now, to make us sure of the writer's design. If a corrupt line or dubious reading chances to intervene, it does not darken the whole context, nor does it make an author's opinion or his purpose precarious. Terence, again, for instance, has as many variations as any book, whatever, and yet with all its interpolations, omissions, additions, or glosses, Choose the worst of them on purpose. You cannot deface the plan and plot of any one play. No, not of one single scene. But its sense, design, and subserviency to the last issue and conclusion shall be visible and plain through all the mist of various readings. And so it is with the sacred text. Make your 30,000 as many more uh, all the better to a knowing and serious reader who is thereby more richly furnished to select what he sees genuine. But even put them into the hands of a knave or a fool. And yet with the most sinister and absurd choice, he will not extinguish the light of any one chapter, nor so disguise Christianity, but that every feature of it will still be the same. Now, you need to understand that. Uh, you get all the manuscripts around. And that you deliberately start choosing the worst reading in, in every manuscript you can find. Put it together in one edition of the text that has all of the errors you can find. <laughs> the message of the gospel is as clear as can be. And you would not, on the basis of that, uh, end up changing any doctrine of the Christian faith. You need to understand that. And this has already anticipated the last objection, namely that sacred books, at least, books imposed upon the world as divine laws and revelations, should have been exempted from the injuries of time and sacred from the least change. But what need of that perpetual miracle if with all the present changes the whole scripture is perfect and sufficient to all the great ends and purposes of its first writing? What a scheme would these men make? What worthy rules would they prescribe to providence? That in millions of copies transcribed in so many ages and nations, all the copyists who made it their trade and livelihood should be infallible and impeccable. That their pens should spontaneously write true or be supernaturally guided, though the scribes were nodding or dreaming. 
would not this exceed all the miracles of both Old and New Testament? And pray to what great use or design to give satisfaction to a few obstinate and untractable wretches. <laughs> to those who are not convinced by Moses and the prophets, but want one from the dead to come and convert them. Such men mistake the methods of providence and the very fundamentals of religion, which draws its votaries by the courts of a man, by rational, ingenious, and moral motives, not by conviction mathematical, not by new evidence miraculous, to silence every doubt and whim that impiety and folly can suggest. And yet all this would have, would have no effect upon such spirits and dispositions. If they now believe not Christ and his apostles, neither would they believe if their own schemes were complied with. Well, see, this is, um, this is the ar writing, the argumentation of somebody totally immersed in, in the transmission of ancient text. And he says, look, I know what goes on when documents are transmitted. And I cannot even begin to tell you what an incredibly better situation we're in <laughs> with regard to the New Testament in comparison with anything else. Now, he said that 300 years ago. Today, I mean, he, would ha he didn't dream. He had no idea of what would yet be discovered including uh, the papyri, especially the papyri in, in, in this century. Well, uh, he dreamed, uh, by the way, of being able to edit a complete critical edition of the New Testament. Uh, this, this was not a new idea, incidentally, a uh, critical edition, not a new idea that, that occurred to uh, Hort in the 19th century. We'll, we'll get back to that. But um, his his he wasn't able to, to complete it. Uh, he, he did a lot of work on the Vulgate because he felt that if, if you had a really, really reliable text of the Vulgate to begin with, uh, you would have uh, a, a very, very important witness going back to the 4th century, end of the 4th century, early 5th century, and so on. And um, he spent so much time on that that he wasn't able to, uh, to uh, continue the rest of his work. The next individual that I want to talk about is... Um, Johann Albrecht Bengel, Bengel, who was a contemporary of Bentley, a little younger than Bentley. And uh, one of the most uh, impressive spiritual leaders and intellectual leaders of, of the church. He was born in, eight, in 1687 in a small town near uh, Stuttgart. Um, as a teenager, he went to a theological college in Tübingen and distinguished himself in the study of uh, philosophy, particularly Spinoza. He was doing research for his teacher's book and, and became quite uh, uh, expert in that field. Then he became involved in, um, in a new edition of the German Bible, that would be Luther's uh, translation, which gave him additional preparation in biblical studies. Eventually... He uh, shared the responsibilities of starting a new seminary in 1713. And um, he uh, delivered uh, an inaugural lecture that was entitled, The Diligent Pursuit of Piety as the Surest Method of Attaining True Learning. The Diligent Pursuit of Piety as the Surest uh, Method 
of attaining true learning. And I, I mention that to you because you need to appreciate uh, Bengal's uh, devotion uh, to his faith and to you know, his commitment to the blending of uh, academic uh, learning and uh, spiritual commitment. Yeah. Well, those are not, uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. He spent almost 20 years at this seminary, and uh, later he was made a, a prelate, and that gave him uh, more time for research. Uh, he died uh, at uh, age 65. He wrote numerous works, the most popular being his uh, Nomen uh, Novi Testamenti. Some of you may be familiar with this work. Um, Noman is like a pointer. It's really a brief commentary. <clears throat> it was translated to English. I think it's called Word Studies in the, on the New Testament or something. And uh, became uh, an incredibly popular uh, source for pastors and even, even scholars. Uh, used it for, for a long time. Even today, occasionally people quote it because uh, Bengal had a real gift for, uh, you know, real brief sentences, phrases that kind of captured uh, the thrust of, of the passages. Not less, no less significant than, than his uh, biblical interpretive work uh, was his work in textual criticism. Already when he was a student, he found out about John Mill and his 30,000 variants and so on. But, uh, and was troubled by it, but instead of you know, burying his head or, or acting as though this didn't exist, he attacked the problem head on and with great diligence. And his work led him to firmer assurance about uh, the uh, validity and the authority of scripture. In fact, later in life, uh, he wrote to a, um, to a student who was having similar difficulties and he wrote as follows, you may dismiss all those doubts which once horribly tormented me. He says, given the numerous transcriptions of the Bible, I only wonder that there are not more variant readings than there are, and that none in the least affect the foundation of our faith. His uh, careful collations, in other words, he, he worked with manuscripts and collated uh, variants uh, from them. Also, his very sound judgment on, on uh, a variety of issues resulted in a rather significant edition of the Greek New Testament, uh, which appeared in the year 1734. Now, uh, this is very, very important because although he printed the Textus Receptus, in basically Erasmus's text, he devised a, a system of notations whereby he not only made people aware of important variants, but he also, if you will, graded the variants. He gave an indication of whether some of these variations were, whether these variations were good or bad. And in some cases, he made it very plain that he thought a number of those variants were better than the Texas Receptus. In other words, that they were more likely to be original and that unleashed a storm of protest, protest, because by that time, you know, 
almost the middle of the 18th century, people simply identify the New Testament with the Texas Receptus. And for someone even to suggest see, that uh, there may be variations in the manuscripts that are more original, that are more likely to be original than what they were looking at in their printed editions was just too much uh, to take. And as a result, Bengal had to um, face a lot of um, attacks against his, uh, the authenticity of his own faith and, and things like that. It was really quite unbelievable uh, considering the, um, uh, the whole of his career. Also very important um, in terms of the theory of textual criticism his familiarity with the evidence was such that it allowed him to discern patterns among the manuscripts. And he came up with the uh, discovery that there were two, at least two, important groups among the manuscripts, which he characterized as an Eastern and as a Western uh, tradition. In other words, he was able to say, you know, all of these manuscripts here share some important features over against these manuscripts here. And uh, that uh, was to lead to very, very important uh, further work, eventually the so-called genealogical method. Um, There's a book by a fellow named Tregelis, or Tregelis, whose name will come up later in, uh, there in the lecture notes, who wrote a book, an account of the printed text of the New Testament. That's where I got the, the material from Bentley, by the way. And uh, he has quite a bit to say also about Bengal. And I wanted to read to you just a, a couple of um, passages, if I can find it. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> He says, um, it is always refreshing. This is Tregelis talking about Bengal. It is always refreshing to see that critical studies in connection with God's word have been carried on by those who themselves knew the real, knew the real spiritual value of the sacred volume on which they were engaged. And this gives a, a special interest to Bengal's labors. He says, it is, it is cheering to the mind of every Christian to observe the spirit in which Bengal acts and speaks in connection with his critical labors. The revision of the text of the word of God was with him no mere affair of learning or literary skill. Rather, knowing the preciousness of, of that volume on which he was engaged, he felt that he had to act in the consciousness of solemn responsibility before God in editing his word. And he knew that God could give the needed intelligence and diligence and thus he looked to him so that the work on which he was engaged might be to the glory of Christ. And, and I wanted to make that point because it's, I don't, don't claim that every textual critic um, was motivated you know, this way. There have been some rascals uh, in, in this field as in any other field. But um, it is important to appreciate that uh, some of the most significant work was done by people who were totally devoted to the scriptures as God's infallible word, and what motivated them was 
the desire to make sure that what they were studying was in fact the original and, and not uh, a later text that had been uh, uh, edited out of uh, relatively late manuscripts. The last person that I want to uh, talk about in this connection is uh, Griesbach, which, uh, who um, is treated in some detail uh, by Metzger. You need to understand that um, there's a little bit of a background here, something that was going on about the same time that Bengel was working. There was a fellow by the name of Wettstein <coughs> that also Metzger um, gives you information on. Wettstein was what, not one of the um, um, you know, paragons of Christian virtue in textual criticism. But he was a very, very remarkable scholar, and, and he just um, went through all the, the literature in, in the Hellenistic period and, and tried to find parallels to the New Testament, this and the other. And he also did quite a bit of uh, manuscript uh, research uh, so that because of his work and that of other people, the, the field was expanding even more. You know, people were finding new manuscripts and, and going through the less uh, lesser known uh, fathers and they were beginning to uh, work through the through the versions in more detail and as a result many years passed before all this new information could be digested and, and really uh, made meaningful Griesbach is important just for that reason uh, he had uh, one of those minds uh, you know he was just able to to sift through all that evidence and, and be able to uh, uh, to understand its significance and, and, and relate this fact with that fact and so on. One of the results of uh, his very important um, uh, manuscript work was his developing of the idea of, of Bengal, you know, about two main families of manuscripts. Uh, he further developed that and, and um, uh, identified a third stream. And these came to be known as the Alexandrian, the Western, and the Byzantine families. Alexandrian, Western, and Byzantine. Very, very important development, and, and we'll have more to uh, say about that. He produced a new edition of the Greek New Testament which um, in effect laid the foundation for a truly critical text. His, his own text cannot be called a truly critical text because it wasn't as though he, he started from scratch. What he did was he took the Textus Receptus and he, uh, he was not as modest as Bengal in putting the variations at the bottom of the page or in the appendix in the back. He actually modified the text on the base of his work. And it was a very significant development. Also very important um, was his formulation of um, rules or guidelines for the proper evaluation of uh, manuscripts. These came to be known as the canons, the canons of textual criticism, or the criteria 
of textual criticism. And um, I want to go over one of them, which uh, Metzger quotes in some detail. This is on page uh, 120. So you may want to look at it on your own a little bit more carefully. But it has to do with the very first canon, known as the canon of the shorter reading. And this is you know, very widely known and, and used. Uh, the shorter reading is preferable. In other words, let's suppose that uh, you're going through a passage of scripture. Some manuscripts uh, have a reading. Other manuscripts have basically the same reading, but it is shorter. Maybe it's missing a word or two. This first canon says you should give greater weight to the shorter reading. Now, please understand, and this is the reason why I want to spend some time uh, talking about this, uh, this particular canon. This is just a guideline. It is a rule of thumb. Uh, just because it, it has the word canon doesn't mean that there's something infallible or uh, universal about it. What, what is really going on here is that Griesbach, because of his great familiarity and experience in evaluating manuscripts, was able to see that uh, scribes had certain tendencies. And all he's doing when he formulates these canons is he's, he's abstracting from the tendencies of the scribes certain criteria. This is what scribes were more likely to do. Therefore, when you're evaluating a reading, please be aware of that. And everything else being equal, give preference to this principle, this principle, this principle, uh, the shorter reading, the harder reading, and so on. What the problem is that um, people have tended just to take that statement, the shorter reading is better, and they apply it somewhat uncritically. No, you cannot do that. You have to take other things into account. And that is why you need to appreciate that Griesbach didn't simply say, the shorter reading is to be preferred, period. He wrote several paragraphs telling you when that principle is more applicable or less applicable. The shorter reading, parenthesis, so immediately he qualifies it unless it lacks entirely the authority of the ancient and weighty witnesses. With that caveat, the shorter reading is to be preferred to the more verbose. Why? Because scribes were much more prone to add than to omit. It, it's very easily shown that, that's, that when you compare manuscripts, uh, that, that scribes were more likely to add than to omit. They scarcely ever deliberately omitted anything, but they added many things. Certainly, they omitted some things by accident. You see, I, one of the reasons why I'm spending a little bit of time on this is that nowadays there are a number of scholars who just throw away these rules. You know, they're not good. Griesbach said that the uh, shorter reading was preferred, that the scribes were more likely to... But look at these examples. Look at all these examples where scribes obviously omitted by accident. 
But that's what Griesbach said. Uh, that scribes often omitted by accident. But likewise, not a few things have been added to the text by scribes through errors of the eye, ear, memory, imagination, and judgment. Particularly, the shorter reading is to be preferred, even though according to the authority of the witnesses, it may appear to be inferior, if at the same time it is more difficult, more obscure, ambiguous, elliptical, hebraizing, or solicistic. These are things that were obstacles to the scribes, you see, so they, they might uh, uh, omit something. B, if the same thing is expressed with different phrases in various manuscripts, if the order of words varies, at the beginning of pericopes, if the longer reading savors of a gloss. So he, he begins to tell you the kinds of context where it is especially likely that, uh, that the shorter reading is better. You see, if you're looking at a short reading and the longer reading, and the longer reading makes it clearer and makes it more obvious or something, the scribe was more likely to choose that, you see, than something else. But on the other hand, the longer reading is to be preferred. You see, you cannot quote the first part without realizing there's this other side of it. The longer reading is to be preferred to the shorter. On this, the latter appears in many witnesses, good witnesses. A, if the occasion of the omission can be attributed to homeotelutana. Now, homeotelutana is when uh, you see that two lines end with the same word, let's say. And it is very easy to see how a scribe might have skipped a line, for example, or two words ending in the same way, and one word might have been skipped. You've done that many times in your, in your own uh, writing. B, if that which was omitted could have seemed to the scribe to be obscure or harsh or superfluous or unusual, so on and so on, so on. C, if that which is lacking could be lacking without harming the sense or the structure of the sentences, so that the scribe you know, might skip a, a, a little word, and then when he comes back to it, it is so insignificant that he doesn't notice it, you see. D, if the shorter reading is less in accord with the style or scope of the author. E, if the shorter reading utterly lacks sense. For heaven's sake, he's saying, you know, if you have one that's short and one that's long, but the short makes no sense whatsoever, don't come to me saying the shorter reading is to be preferred. Of course not. Uh, F, if it is probable that the shorter reading has crept in from the parallel passages or from lectionaries. So uh, these canons were very, very carefully formulated on the basis of extensive, detailed knowledge of what the scribes normally did. And uh, for these reasons and many others, Griesbach's work you know, is, is to be uh, recognized as very, very important. Um, all right, any questions uh, up to this point before we move on to the next stage? Yeah. Well, uh, if you come to the conclusion, if you come to the conclusion that that passage was not part of the original uh, text of John, I myself think it is a, a mistake to treat it as though it were part of Scripture. Now, true, it is a very ancient story. And true, it may have really happened. Um, but I would be hesitant. I mean, we do not, to me, we do not preach or base our faith 
on reports about what Jesus may have said or done, but on scripture. That, that's our basis. And so, um, you know, if, I suppose if you can treat that passage as you might treat some other story from the early church, you know, as illustrative or something, uh, maybe. But I myself, you know, thinking that it probably does not belong in the original text would not make it my text for a sermon, for example. You mean how, how would you handle the people's, uh, well, see, again, it probably depends on what version you're using. Because if you happen to be using a version that doesn't have that story, there, maybe only in the footnote or something, uh, it's less of a problem. If you're dealing with people who assume that it must be part of Scripture, then I wish I could give you a, you know, a, first you do this and first you do that, you can't do that. It just depends on the people you're dealing with, on, uh, you know, how, what's their temperament, how they're thinking about these things. Um, you, you, you may have very strong convictions about something one way or the other, and yet realize that as you're trying to communicate your convictions, you have to be very, very sensitive as to how people are going to interpret what you're saying. And, uh, and so my answer to you is, unfortunately, I cannot give you, there isn't any one answer. Uh, you have to assess how much you think this group is able to, to handle at a particular point. Um, and, uh, you know, if if they have never heard anything about textual criticism at all, if they're not even aware that manuscripts differ, you're going to do that much different from the way that you would if these people have had some training in Sunday school and maybe they're aware of some problems and so on. Um, so it, it's really more a pastoral question, you know, than, than strictly a technical one. Yeah? The uh, apparatus, did you give it an A was the A rating is what they have in the text. And what they have in the text is they're not including it in the text. In other words, the A means that what they have chosen for the text is, is practically certain. And what they've chosen for the text, and what they have chosen for the text is to omit that section. It is the omission that receives an A. Yeah, yeah. These canons, are, are, they, um, are they still accepted, these uh, canons, are they still accepted as the best guidelines for handling these Well, as I was saying, there are some scholars who pay very little attention to them, and they think they're misleading. They don't seem to endorse that to you, though. Right. I think that they're still absolutely accurate um, reflections on the probabilities of what scribes did. Now, there's a further qualification that needs to be inserted here. For example, if you take the papyri in the earlier period, the tendencies are not exactly the same as the tendencies of some of the later manuscripts, and you have to take that into account. Okay, let's uh, take a five-minute break and get back to this. <laughs> 